The demand for energy is accelerating like never before. New sources are emerging and established ones are evolving. Collectively, all sources will provide the fuel needed to support future global demand. Here on the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, we explore and learn about the people and companies solving today's problems to produce tomorrow's energy needs. Here is your host, Jose Solis. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Halliburton Labs. Halliburton Labs works with early stage companies to help accelerate their growth by providing access to operational expertise, mentorship, as well as financing opportunities as companies prepare to scale. Enter to win their weekly giveaway at halliburtonlabs.com forward slash giveaway. Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to the show. On this episode of the podcast, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Alan J. Cohen. Dr. Cohen is an internationally recognized executive and geoscientist and serves PetroLearn LLC as the Director of Technology Partnerships and Business Development for Geothermal, Carbon Storage, and Oil and Gas. He has over 35 years of experience in leadership and senior advisor positions in green energy, upstream oil and gas, research and development, geosciences, and engineering. He has served as a senior executive at the U.S. Department of Energy, a chief technology officer at two technology companies, and chief geophysicist at Royal Dutch Shell in North and South America. Having done business on all continents, Dr. Cohen speaks English and French, holds a PhD and Master's of Science in Physics from Harvard University, and a Bachelor's of Science in Chemistry from McGill University as well as being a patent inventor on converting fossil energy into geothermal power. So without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Alan J. Cohen. Dr. Alan Cohen, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jose, I want to thank you and the OGBM for giving me the opportunity to talk to you and to the audience today. So thanks a lot. Yeah, no worries. We connected through LinkedIn. I found you because I had read an article on RigZone about PetroLearn and how you guys are working on some technology to help companies look at their wells and see if they're good candidates for conversion to geothermal. So that's how we connected. And I found that information and I wanted to just get with you and, and really you know, sort of continue a conversation on geothermal that I'd had recently with another geothermal expert. But what really interested me about your background in particular was that you'd had, you've had history in other verticals within energy, such as oil and gas, right? Yeah. I, so give us give us a little bit, give the audience a little bit about, you know, how you ventured into oil and gas and, and tell us how you've made that transition to geothermal. Sure. Happy to. What I like to tell people is I began life as a chemist and I got really good grades, but I used to break things in the lab. We were doing an experiment once where you caused chemical reactions over time and you had to measure a little crucible with something in it with a cap on top. And then you'd have to measure it at the end. And then you'd know what you had. Right. Well, my cap blew off in the middle of the experiment. <laughs> and I knew I wasn't going to be an analytical chemist. So I, I switched into physics in grad school. Okay. And then somebody said, you know, you're modeling materials under high pressures. You, you need to talk to the geology department down the street. And my boss, who was a physicist slash chemist, didn't know anything about geology. But he let me explore in this new area. And when it was time to to leave grad school with my PhD, I had limited choices because I wasn't a U.S. citizen. I was Canadian. 
And I had to decide what I wanted to be when I grew up. And Shell Oil came by and said, we don't care what citizen you are. You look like a good guy. So we'll go hire you. And I spent my first 25 to 30 years in the oil and gas industry with Shell and others. And then I had an opportunity a couple of years ago to get into what they call renewables or cleaner energy. And it was something I was passionate about. I wasn't giving up the oil and gas, but it was an opportunity for me to learn new things, but yet apply some of the stuff that I knew about the earth to this whole new area. It looks like years ago, everybody, if they left oil and gas, wanted to be a data scientist. Now they want to be in geothermal. So I actually know a little bit about that now. Excellent. So now that you've made this transition, tell us a little bit about what you're working on. Yeah, so I work for a company that has offices in Atlanta and a few other cities, and it's called PetroLearn. And it was originally developed, it's got the word learn in it, about eight years ago to provide training courses and to do projects. And most of them were oil and gas. But in the last few years, we've gotten into clean energy, either storing CO2 in the ground or in geothermal. And a few of us had this idea, which was not new, to take existing late stage oil and gas wells or wells that had been abandoned by bankrupt companies called orphan wells. Mm -hmm. And instead of just plugging them, which reduces CO2 into the atmosphere and costs a lot of money, we decided that we would try to convert some of them into energy, geothermal energy, energy from the earth, either electricity or heat. And what was missing was everyone was just picking wells at random. Let's try this one. Let's try this one. It's a complicated problem. It requires a lot of experts. So a few of us worked something out and got a patent. And we have a system called ConvertDeck. And it enables us to very quickly go through and look at wells and decide, yeah, we're going to convert that one. It's going to be good. The earth is behaving nicely, the energy is sufficient, and we're going to make money. And if you, if your company pays for this project, we'll tell you where to sell the electricity or heat and how much. If the well's not a good candidate, you can plug and abandon it, or you might be able to store something in it, like CO2, like hydrogen, maybe even nuclear waste. So I think that's fascinating. And, and we're starting some projects now with companies around the world to apply that tool and to convert those wells into geothermal energy. So you guys take the information that that the operator provides you, you analyze it, and then you provide them with a an idea of what to do next, if it's a good or if it's a bad candidate, correct? Yeah, exactly. The only thing I'd say in that is those of us who've worked in oil and gas, we understand part of the problem and we understand it quite well. We know we know what good temperatures are like. We, we know for a geothermal system, you need to have a heat source in the ground. You, you need to have a layer in the earth that's got fluid in it. And then you have a fluid pathway that takes it up into some power station. When we get into the power station part, that's where the oil company doesn't know as much. That's okay. where we have people on our team that are called power engineers. One guy, Kevin Kitts, who's been working 35 years on this. He even sold his company to a very large outfit. And he worked at Unical for a number of years. But yeah, we basically take input from the oil companies and additional knowledge from power experts. And we put them together and we look for projects that are going to make money. You'd mentioned when we were talking earlier that 
you know, there were some ancillary benefits that you had noticed to converting these wells from oil and gas wells to geothermal wells. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So we have a new energy secretary. By the way, I worked at the, as you did in your introduction, I worked at the Department of Energy for a few years in oil and gas, but I also talked to people in geothermal. And with the new administration now, under President Biden, the new energy secretary, Jennifer Granham, wants to do a few things. One is she wants to get more value from the heat beneath our feet. That's called geothermal. But she also realizes that there are oil and gas people that that are out of work for many, many reasons. One is which there's been a lot of mergers and acquisitions in the oil and gas industry. And so that sheds people. And that's just not people like me, engineers and geoscientists wearing a tie, sitting in a workstation. It's a lot of the blue collar workers who work out in the field in the oil and gas operations. And if we were going to convert some of these wells into geothermal, we look at various well designs. One is to just take the well the way it is if it's under the right conditions. If it's hot enough and it's producing enough fluid, then we'll use it. But, but it may be that the interval in the earth that the well was originally drilled for is not exactly the one that you want to use for the geothermal. The geothermal one has to be producing a lot of water. The oil and gas industry picked something that was producing a lot of oil and gas. And so we need to look up and down in the well around that reservoir interval and see what interval we're going to, as they say, recomplete or punch holes into through the casing in order to get the fluid to flow. And we might need to put some additional equipment in the well, like downhole pumps, to increase the natural flow of water that we have without the pump. Well, those are people in the field that know how to complete or recomplete certain zones in the well, to do what are known as workovers, to decide on pump choices. And then there's going to be a lot of people who might move over and they were engineers, maybe civil engineers working oil and gas. Now they could be working on the power system design, the fabrication, the installation. There are many, many activities for blue collar and white collar. And we did a back of the envelope calculation and over the next few years could easily see about 100,000 people from oil and gas that could be working and making a good living on these geothermal conversion projects. So I think it's a great win-win opportunity. It uses the heat beneath our feet and it redeploys people in areas where they can make a contribution. When you mentioned something about, when you mentioned the need to put additional equipment into the well to maybe stimulate the water to come out, is this going to be some of the same or different or different type of tools that a traditional oil field service company would have already, like electronic submersible pumps or things of that nature? A lot of it would be fairly standard. Some of them might be specific to the geothermal, but a lot of it would be fairly standard. Now, so by the way, the, we don't want to put too many things into the well because the more and more things we do to the well, the cost of the project goes up. And the whole idea about not drilling new wells is really important. A lot of the projects where people try to drill new wells and then maybe flow cold water down the well, it heats up and then it's produced at the other end, those all cost more money than just repurposing existing wells. So that's the advantage that this method has. Which basins in the United States have you seen the most activity in so far? Yeah. 
you know, most of the geothermal projects that exist in the United States right now that don't involve repurposing wells are on the West Coast. And generally, they're on what are known as volcanic belts around the world. And these are fairly high temperature projects. So, Jose, I don't know if you know or your your listeners know, but only about 1% of the total energy generation in the United States as of now comes from geothermal. Now we are moving over to somewhat lower temperature rocks, maybe around 200 degrees Fahrenheit, that are where the oil and gas wells are being drilled. And those are the ones that are being repurposed. So there's a significant upside. We might be able to increase the energy production from maybe 1% to 5%. And some of our partners on our team are from Southern Methodist University. They have generated maps of the earth, temperature maps. Now, just because something is at the right temperature doesn't mean that a well there is going to convert because it could be in the middle of nowhere, the well could be in bad shape, the water flow could be low, but those are good starting points. So when you look at states like Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, and maybe some in the middle of the country, possibly Colorado, possibly even up in Alaska, those are where we're starting to look at some of the projects in the United States. Certainly Texas and Louisiana come up high in the list. I personally work those states in the oil and gas business, so I know the geology pretty well. And I'm assuming because of the infrastructure that's already in those regions, it probably makes them a better candidate than some of the other basins that might have sort of come online a little bit more when the shale boom sort of happened back in 2010-12 timeframe. Yeah, you know, your question is great for a number of reasons. First, the answer is yes. You know, everybody thinks that maybe we're looking at all these shale wells and they're the best candidates. Well, some of them may be and some of them aren't. Before the shales, not as far back as the dinosaurs like me, but people were drilling wells in conventional reservoirs. And that might have been 20 years ago. And some of those wells still have another 20-year lifetime, not all. So we look at some of the more straightforward wells, the conventional wells, as well as the unconventional wells. And so we have a big population, not just the unconventional shale wells that we can look at as possible candidates. Excellent. So sort of switching gears a little bit, because I want to hit a little bit on how the company is starting to scale, right? Because you mentioned that at first the company was focused more on learning and teaching and then has now sort of, has it added or is it pivoted to providing this insight for geothermal conversion? I think if our CEO, Dr. Hammond Sarush was here, he would say that a really key decision that he took about four years ago was besides teaching and besides doing consulting or service projects to go heavy into the research. And so that's been cleaner oil and gas research, it's been carbon storage research, and it's been geothermal research. And we've won six grants from industry and from the Department of Energy over the last few years that that have helped us and continue to help us to grow in these areas. And the way we work is when we get a research grant and we've done some pilot studies or we feel comfortable enough to to market the technology, then we go out and do what are often field projects. And that's basically the stage that we're at right now. We're talking to companies in Asia. We've submitted proposals in Europe. We're in almost final discussions in two South American countries. And we've talked to at least four oil companies that between them, 
probably have 40,000 wells onshore. By the way, it's also possible to consider this offshore, assuming there's enough room on the offshore platform to put a modular power plant, because some of the offshore wells produce and some of them don't. That is hydrocarbons. And if you can find some wells that don't produce hydrocarbons but produce enough water, you might be able to use that to power the platform. Now, where we're not at yet, and I mean the whole industry, is being able to transmit that energy all the way back to the beach and powering something really big. Right now, we're just talking about powering platforms. But I set up a meeting with the Interior Department, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, BOEM, that does a lot of the regulatory work in the Gulf of Mexico, runs federal lease sales and so on. And we asked if they might be interested in following what we were proposing to convert offshore wells. And they said, yeah. I think there's a group of about five companies that have nothing to do with Petrolearn, but but that's great. Geothermal advances in general are great that are having the same sort of discussions with operators and regulatory agencies in the North Sea in Europe. So if we can do this not only onshore, but offshore, it becomes a really big deal. So if we're at 1% right now of geothermal, with all of the efforts that are being undertaken by yourself, the companies that are that are trying to increase geothermal energy, in the next, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years, what do you think is a realistic number that we could get to that would be beneficial for, for us? I'll give you my own personal guess. I'd like to see something between 5 and 10% of the total power production in the United States coming from geothermal. People are... You know, with anything new, like the oil industry is not used to operating in geothermal, but they're all looking for a way, most companies are, to transition into cleaner energy. What we propose is completely zero emissions. There's no release of gases of methane or CO2 or whatever into the atmosphere. So we just need to spread the word through podcasts like this. We need to spread the word. We need to spread the capabilities. But I think we can make a significant impact. Now, people that I used to work with in university when I was doing solid state physics have all turned into material scientists, and many of them are working on solar cells. Well, the sun only shines a certain number of hours a day. The wind only blows. We're also considering possible uh, solutions to combine solar and geothermal. Heat from the earth is almost entirely on. The only time you don't use it is when your power plant needs to go through periodic maintenance. So 97% of the time that system is on, but not 97% of the time solar or wind. So we're looking at all sorts of combinations. Remember, we're starting with fossil. We're going to renewable. We might be able to combine solar with geothermal into what Kevin Kitts calls a geothermal battery. More to be revealed later. We're still sort of working on it, but it's fascinating to have a number of options. So with all of the years of experience that you have and and all of the things that you've done, you mentioned that you spent some time sort of giving back to the community and mentoring, and which I think is fantastic. And I think if anybody ever has the bandwidth to do it and they're considering it, they definitely should. We talked a little bit about the benefits, not only to the mentee, but the mentor as well. How did you get into mentoring? I think it was a natural thing for me to do. When I started off in the industry, I was a senior technical person until after a few years, I was sort of moved up part of the management branch. 
And when I was running a department, which I grew from two people to 25 people, from geoscientists and engineers, we had a mixture of very experienced people and kind of junior people. And it was important to be able to put most people on a relatively even playing field and to get more capability out of the less experience. So I sort of set up pairs of individuals mentors and mentees, and they would even put a formal contract together. Nobody promises anything, but at least they knew how they were going to spend their mentoring time. Later, I got an opportunity. Shell set up what was known as chiefs. There was a chief of well engineering, a chief of geophysics. That was around the year 2005, and I ended up with 175 staff in New Orleans and in Houston in the United States, in Caracas in Venezuela, and in Calgary in Canada. And we needed some way to put the right people on the right projects at the right time. We had all these operational projects and all these fields all over the Western Hemisphere. And so being a personal mentor to some of the people and then putting some of the more experienced people together with some of the less experienced was a way to give people opportunities, visibility, and training. And then finally, my parent professional society, which is a great way to do mentoring, was setting up something called the Staff Development and Mentoring Committee. And I reached out and, and said I wanted to be a part of that because sharing sharing what I know with other people, and, and as often happens, learning new perspectives from some of them is just fun. You might have heard some of the larger oil companies now have people with maybe three to five years experience that are reverse mentoring the CEOs that are telling them what the digital transformation means and different ways of working and interacting with people. I think it's a fascinating exercise. Well, you know, for a long time, we were going through what was considered the great crew change. And I'm sure you remember this, right? And and we're still seeing a lot of people you know, for whatever reason, whether it be retirement or whether it be just, you know, tired of some of the fluctuations that come with being in the industry, have decided to, you know, look for other, you know, ways of being employed, which is unfortunate because then we lose a lot of that knowledge and a lot of that knowledge is lost with them. And so I think it's really great when people do give back. Yes. And that helps. It helps tremendously. And, And we want to promote that next generation of oil and gas energy professionals, you know, we see a lot of competition with us and like other STEM companies like technology, where people really want to go work for a technology company, but don't understand some of the values and benefits that they would enjoy in the energy industry. And we want to attract and retain the best talent that we can. We do. We do. I'm a big supporter of access diversity, inclusion, and so on, not, not because it's on the checklist of, of any sort of leader, and to an extent we're all leaders, but because it's the right thing to do, because our population in the United States is more and more diverse, because if you're in the service company, the likelihood that you will be selling something to somebody who doesn't look exactly like you is very high. People naturally like to, to work across company lines with people that have similar viewpoints, interests, backgrounds, and so on. Yeah, it's extremely important to get the best and the brightest into the industry, to get them engaged, and to keep them engaged. 
on that point that you made about selling to operators from the service company side, having been on both sides now, what is your perspective as far as, you know, what are some of the things that somebody at a service company can do to give themselves a high probability of success when approaching a service or an oil field operator? The first thing I tell my people to do, and right now we're in the middle of hiring a salesperson to work with me so that I can be 100% on partnerships and business development and less so on the selling, is don't start making a sales pitch until you get to know the people in the oil company and until you understand their gaps, their needs, and their pain points. And the whole discussion has to be around value. The joke I usually say is I go into somebody's office if I'm going to mess this up, and I say, hey, would you want to buy a watch? And they say, well, Alan, you weren't looking at me. Can't you tell I'm blind? <laughs> the time piece. But that won't do it for me. The famous story that the younger generation knows is, is, is from one of the Wall Street movies called Sell Me This Pen. And so basically when you sell the pen, you appeal to and you get an understanding of what the client really wants. And in fact, that pen many years ago on, on an old show, hardly half the world remembers Johnny Carson. They had the world's greatest salesman there. Johnny picked up, it wasn't a pen, an ashtray and said, sell me this ashtray. And the guy says, this is a great ashtray. Where'd you get that? What do you like about it? Oh, I like that it's easy to use, whatever. So you like this ashtray, huh? Sold. <laughs> he, he sold him based on the fact that the guy likes ashtrays that have a particular function. The other thing I will say is there are many models. One model is the oil company, if it's big, doesn't contract for much of anything, except more data, and it does everything in-house. Then if the company's really small, maybe the service company does everything. We're seeing more and more of a collaborative environment now, where if the oil company has the local knowledge about the geology, if it has generalists, but it's missing a few people to do specific things that are important, but they're not going to be done every day in and out, then there's a partnership there. The oil company does what it's good at. It points us in a direction. The service company develops new technology if it needs to, or it takes its proved technology and starts applying it with the oil company. And it's a great partnership. Absolutely. I've heard so many different perspectives on this. And I heard one of the best ones from a salesperson that I've worked with and he said, you got to find a need and solve a need. And absolutely true. It's like getting to know as fast as you can. If they don't have a need, then don't waste your time, right? And don't try and convince them that they have a need because that's going to be like trying to convert them. You know? So, you know, understand like if they know they have a need, find it, you solve it. Well, you know, related to that, when we talk about value, when we talk about value, it means you're saving the customer money. It's either a capital expense, an operating expense. You're producing the decision in a shorter time period. That's the time value of money. You're increasing the production. You're making it more environmentally friendly or safer. Everything needs to be bottom line. Very rarely do we say, here's a proposal and it costs this. And the client says, well, I want to pay that. How about this? If you get into an understanding upfront that says we're talking about a project, 
I'm just pulling a number out of thin air. They're all different. Maybe it's $75,000. But if a client knows that that project is going to save or make them millions of dollars, then there really isn't any point quibbling over whether it's 75, 65, or 85. And at that point, somebody, probably the service company, did not convey well enough to the client that we agreed on what the value was. It's all about value. It's all about value marketing. It's all about value saving. Given your history, you know, your professional history, your educational history, where you are today, if someone would have told you, you know, 30 years ago, this is where you'll be today, this is where energy will be today, what would you have told them? I would have told them I think it's a little far-fetched. This whole clean energy thing, because we're still trying to make it techno-economic. And some technologies have a little bit of a helping hand because the government is giving them investment tax credits or whatever. We would like technologies like geothermal, the way that we do it, where we don't have to drill new wells. So we save at least 50% of the capital cost. We would like these projects to stand on their own merit, to be technically reasonable and to be profitable. And when we get to that point, that will make sense. For better or for worse, from projections from neutral third parties, fossil energy in one way or another is going to be prominent, especially nat gas, for probably the next 20 years, just using the charts that I have. And then the renewables are going to be growing. Coal might be declining. Oil might be staying relatively flat. But there's room for geothermal, for hydrothermal, for nuclear, for wind, for biomass, for solar, and so on. I think this is coming at the right time. You know, the public is concerned and rightfully so. We need to be mindful of greenhouse gas emissions. And I think everything's coming together very nicely now. I would certainly have no qualms recommending that people go and get degrees in geoscience or petroleum engineering. Their focus over, may, over time may change, but there's plenty of opportunity for them. Absolutely. And just as you mentioned, I mean, you're thinking legacy now, right? And you know, like before we started the podcast, we were talking about family and, you know, I start thinking about my kids and, you know, my potential grandkids down the road. And, and I'm, I want to leave this a better place than what I found it. And I want to create a pathway for them so that they're able to enjoy all the luxuries of life that we were fortunate enough to enjoy. Yeah. With all that being said, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap up now. So I'd like to just give you an opportunity to let people know where they can learn more about you, where they can learn more about PetroLearn, how they can connect with you guys. So our website is www.petrolearn.com. As we speak, we are significantly improving that website, so the response time is a lot shorter. We just put it through some tests. We're redoing some of the content, so I apologize that you know it might even need a sign that says under construction or under transition. But I think it's a great place to start. I'm at alan.cohen at petrolearn.com, and I'd be willing to talk to people about our offerings or, or, or most anything that people want. What would help me out is to put your question or subject in the subject line. You can't imagine, and this is good, how many emails we get every day. But I want to thank you, Jose, and the Oil and Gas Business Network very much for giving us the opportunity. This has been a lot of fun, and I don't think I will change anything I said, so I'm I'm looking forward to the broadcast. Yeah, no worries. We really appreciate you spending some time with us. Really appreciate you giving us some idea about what's happening in geothermal and some of the new technology that's being 
developed around geothermal and what you guys are doing and, and a little bit about your history as well as your uh, outlook on the industry. So really appreciate that. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. And I can't wait to hear more about you guys and yourself in the future. You know where to find us. Thanks again. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for June 2021. This month, we have six events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events that I talk about here. We even include events that occurred two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. This month, OGGN will be hosting two events. One is online and one is in person. For our online event, we're hosting a live stream titled Deal Value Creation, M&A and ONG. This is going to be on June the 2nd. And for our in-person event, we're relaunching our happy hours. It's been far too long since we had a good happy hour, so I'm sure plenty of you will be excited to hear that our next happy hour will be at the Cannon in Houston, Texas on June 24th. At this event, you'll be able to meet some of OGGN's hosts and network with other oil and gas industry professionals, all while enjoying great food and drinks. We hope to see you there. Other than OGGN's events, we have two in-person and two online events. First up, we have our two in-person events, which are the Energy Capital Conference on June 2nd at the Omni Houston Hotel and the U.S. Police and Fire Championships from June 10th to the 21st. The Police and Fire Championships will be hosted in multiple locations, so make sure to check out our events newsletter for more information about that. Next, we have our two online events, the first being the Post-Industrial Summit Series. This event actually started on May 4th, but it'll be ending later this month on June 22nd, so there's still plenty to see. And our second online event is the Big Data Industry Summit from June 9th to 10th. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for June. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Join us again next week for another episode of the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.